you have a little one with us, they can head to Children's Church at this time. Children's Church is open to ages nursery, so newborn all the way to in second grade. And I believe they are already headed out. I see a bunch of young ones heading out the door with Miss Sharon leading them. And we praise God for that. For the rest of us, we are going to return to our study in the book of James. And we're going to be in James chapter 2. And we're going to get really, especially as we get into the second chapter of James, we're really going to get into the teachings of James and the things that he wanted the church to know and wanted the church to understand. And so we're going to read some pretty big chunks in the weeks to come. And we're going to read from James chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 13. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And God, through James, says this. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there's also one who comes in who is a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And then you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich one who is, is not the rich who oppose you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Please be seated. There's an old story that makes its rounds about a particular Sunday morning, a church gathered for worship. And as they were all coming into worship and maybe like us, they were coming in from Sunday school classes or coming in the door and, and heading into the worship service, they began to notice that in the midst of their congregation, a, a man who they assumed to be a homeless man ha, had also come into the church that day. And it didn't take a whole lot to figure out that this man probably was homeless, that he had not had a shower in a while, that his clothes were shabby and dirty, his beard was unkept, he had a hat covering his head and he wore, you know, gloves and, and he had all of kind of everything he owned was on him and, and he came in with a, with a bag that, that he carried really everything that he ever owned. 
Undoubtedly, there was a smell to the man, but if we're honest with ourselves, the church had no idea if he did or not because they never got anywhere near him to find out. And so as the congregation began to come into the building and they saw that man, they gave him a very wide berth and made a point of getting past him as quickly as possible and saying as separate from him as could be. Throughout the course of the morning, as you saw here in our own congregation, people were talking and laughing, but the man sat in a corner on a pew by himself and no one spoke with him and no one greeted him and no one got within five feet of him. Finally, as the service was about to start, they, they did their singing and they, they began their time of worship through song. And then finally it became time for the sermon and a, and a deacon or an elder within the church got up and he began to walk to the front of the congregation. And as he got up to the pulpit, he said, Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce to you today our new pastor, Brother, please come up. And with that, the homeless man in the corner got up and he took off his hat and he smoothed out his beard and he took off his jacket and he began to walk to the pulpit. And the congregation stood silent. But for maybe a gasp and a little whisper from side to side. And as the pastor took the steps up to the stage... And he stood and he looked at his congregation. He said, brothers and sisters, we have got to do better. I cannot help but wonder if our church would be any different than the church in that story. And really, to be totally honest, I would have to wonder if I would be any different than the people in that story. So often we come into church and maybe there is someone here that we have not seen before and for whatever reason they look different than maybe what we would expect someone to look like who came to Tunnel Hill Baptist Church. Maybe they dress different. Maybe they have a different background. Maybe they have a different socioeconomic class. And the moment we see them, we begin to make judgments in our brain. Who are they? What are they doing here? Are they just passing through? What do they want? What are they going to ask for? What is the pastor going to do? We start to make assumptions that they're just here for money. And they're going to ask, they're going to come up at the end and ask for a love offering or something like that. We begin to assume that they want other things from the congregation and, and some sort of support. Or we'll just assume, oh, this is just someone, maybe they're from the, the camping, uh, campground down the road and they're just passing through. And it's not even worth my time to learn their name. Because they will be here one day and then they'll be gone the next. I would love to say that we would not act like that, but I'm not sure we can because I'm not sure that I can say that I would not act like that. 
And it would be hard for me not to, to, remind, to be reminded that this is a person created in the image of God, that this is someone that God knows and that God loves and that God sent his son to die for. And I might be tempted to just say, this is just someone passing through. And I'd be tempted to ignore them, to give them a wide berth so that I didn't get caught up in something that I don't want to be caught up in. And our passage today would speak right to my heart and my mind in a situation like this. In fact, even as I was reading and preparing for this a few weeks ago, it really hit me right between the eyes and and really should be for all of us today a gut check, which is something James has got no hesitation to do about where is our mind and where is our heart, not just when we are gathered, but as we go through our day. And I hope that you, like me, will listen to what James is saying in our passage today and begin to question the way that we've always done things. Indeed, our passage begins with a very direct command from James. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. This is a command for us, something that we should immediately take hold of and begin to ponder. Now, James chapter 2 is really a continuation of the end of James chapter 1 that says this. It says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is really just a continuation. If like if we were to ask the question, well, what does it mean to keep ourselves unstained from the world? James would immediately say, if we were to ask that question, he'd say, first off, do not hold your faith with a spirit of personal favoritism. And so if we are going to do what pure and undefiled religion is, it begins with something like this. He goes on, as he does in in his teaching, as he gives us an example. He gives us a, a situation to understand what he is saying. First, we have the man who comes into the congregation who at least outwardly looks to be wealthy. This is a man who is wearing fine clothes. The, the word in, in the original language that means fine means to be shiny. That he's, he's wearing shiny clothes. Picture silks and, and, and gold thread just woven through all that he has and on his fingers he has gold rings he is someone who is very willing and able to communicate to people i have money and i have money maybe even to throw around by contrast we also have the man who who the bible says is of humble means the man who is poor He looks poor. He is dirty. His clothes are not anything shiny or special like the the rich man, but probably his coming in in his working clothes. If you would remember when we're in the early church, and James is probably the earliest letter we have from the New Testament. If we remember, the, the church gathered on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, because that was the Lord's day, but that was also a work day. If they were part of the Jewish culture, which is likely that that James is still, for the most part, writing to Hebrew Christians, 
they would have had their, their, if they had Sabbath and went to the synagogue and were showing and, and, and reasoning with people in the synagogue that Jesus was the Christ, then they would gather on Sunday, probably after work or at least after some part of work, and, and would gather to worship and to talk about what it means to follow Jesus and to encourage one another. And so you'd have the rich man who doesn't work because he has other people who work for him, who is clean and shiny and well-dressed. But then you have the poor man, and the poor man came there from work. And he got off in the fields or in whatever he was doing. And when he walks in, the dirt is still on his feet and his sandals. His, his garment is probably stained with sweat. There is a smell of being outdoors or in whatever workshop he may have been in all over him. The idea here is not even necessarily this would be like a middle class craftsman, but rather a day laborer who was, who was just available to work in the fields every day. Now, according to just what James says, we know nothing else about these two but their outward appearance. But I'm sure that all of us can relate that sometimes that's all we need to start making judgment calls about who someone is and what they want and what their backstory is. So the question then comes, how did the congregation respond to these two people? knowing nothing about them except what they could assume from their outward appearance. Again, we look at the text and we see that to the rich man, they gave him a place of honor. If we put this into our own context, imagine the man comes in with the, the Armani suit and, 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 and the lady walks in wearing her, her whatever and carrying her Louis Vuitton bag. That's about as good as I get, people. I'm in that poor side of the category carrying her Louis Vuitton bag, and and they come in, and we immediately greet them at the door and say, Hey, welcome to Tunnel Hill Baptist Church. Here, let me me take care of you. Hey, do you need a bulletin? Here, here's a bulletin. Do you need anything else? Hey, here's some information about our church. And, and, you know, here's a tithe envelope. Here's, you know, just in case you want to give something. Here, let me me help you get a seat. Here, let's take you back here. Um, Let's yeah, the air's good right here. Okay, like, can you see both screens? Can you, can you see the pastor good? Our pastor likes to move around a little bit, so you want a kind of a central spot. And can you, can you hear good? Is everything good? Do we need to turn it up? Do we need to turn it down? Do you know where the bathrooms are? Do you have kids? Do you want kids? Do you think about kids? We can show you where the kids are. And by the time they are good, and then we run to the back, and we say, hey, there's, some, there's a guest here. Pastor, make sure you greet them. And we want to make sure that that person who is dressed nice and looked nice, that they have the top-notch, best foot-forward, most wonderful experience at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church that they have ever had. And if we were really honest today, we've probably done it. Obviously not as silly as I just did it. But I bet you there have been times where someone has walked through that door And they looked like us. And they talked like us. And they smelled like us. And they dressed like us. And we said something like, man, sure would be nice to have them as a member of our church. And then let's contrast it. Assuming at the same time as the rich man, in comes a poor man. And do they give him a place of honor? No. 
Do they make sure his needs are met? No. Do they make sure everything's taken care of? No. Look at the text. What does he say? Go stand over there. Could you imagine? Hey, I see you've still got some dirt on your clothes. I don't want to get dirt on my furniture. Why don't you just go stand over there? These pews are nice. And I'd hate to get a stain on this beautiful pink, might used to have been red, upholstery. So if you don't mind, can you just stand over there? But Well, not by the soundboard because my wife is there. I don't want you too close to my wife. Just go stand over there. Or here, better yet, why don't you just sit at my feet so that way I can keep an eye on you. Even says on the, in the passage, it says, why don't you sit by my footstool? Because there was a mindset there that, you know, feet were dirty and the floor was dirty. And so they would sit and they would sit in a chair and then they would put their feet on a footstool so that none of their body was touching the dirt and the ground. And yet they had the audacity to turn to the poor man and say, why don't you sit on the ground that I don't even want to put my feet on? What would that look like for us today? The poor man comes in the door. Our greeters at the door who are fantastic, and I know they wouldn't do this. Instead of saying, hey, welcome to Tunnel Hill, they go, morning. And the person walks in the door and they immediately ignore him. The bulletins are there, but no one's going to give this person one. They come in the building and, and, and they look and everybody can tell immediately that everybody's staring at them. They walk through the door. They're coming here. They're going to sit right there or right there. And you may notice as we put everybody the spotlight on them, we already have people sitting there. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to walk in the building and see that that poor man, whoever that is, sitting there. And are they going to go, hey, my name's Josh. Can I sit with you? No, they're going to do this. Well, we're going to find someplace else to sit. And do they sit next to them? No. Do they sit just one row in front of them? No. They come all the way over here or they go all the way over there and that poor man suddenly realizes that while he is sitting right there or right there that he has at least like a five person three pew buffer between them and anyone else in the building And people scurry past them quickly and no one greets them and no one says hello and maybe even the pastor himself works very hard on this side of the room to say hi to people so that he has to avoid that side of the room. And we come to our greeting of the fellowship as we often do and everybody stands up and everybody's milling around and you can see a tiny island in the back of the building because no one still will get within five feet of the poor man. I'll be honest. It doesn't sound that far-fetched, does it? And verse 4 tells us exactly what we are doing. It says, Have you not 
made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. James gives the church a rhetorical question in which we must answer yes. Yes, we've made a judgment. Yes, we've let those judgments translate to action. And in doing so, we have sinned against God in the very place that we come to worship Him. James lets us know that what we do in this moment is sin and, in fact, a violation of the very law of God. In Leviticus 19.15, we see the verse that James is referring to when he says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And we are left having to question both our attitudes and our actions. From this point, I imagine, could you imagine just for a moment being one of the first churches that had this letter read to it and, and, and suddenly you go, oh, we've done that. And suddenly the whole place is as quiet as the building is right now. And to this, James begins to speak more. And in verse 5, he regathers their attention when he says, listen, my beloved brethren. And he begins to help them understand that we are called to see things the way God sees them and not the way that the world sees them. See, what's happened in that moment, and and for us, if we were to do that very thing and to treat the rich one way and the poor one way, to pursue those who have wealth and those that might be good for what we would say is good for our church and then then try to chase off or scare away those who, who without wealth that we might think are not good for our church, he begins to say, listen, you are seeing things the way the world sees them. You are fleshly, carnal, but you need to remember that we have not been called to live and think and see and act the way the world does. And therefore, he appeals to Jesus himself and the teachings of Jesus for them to begin to re-see and rethink what God is wanting them to do. He begins with this statement. He says, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God? This is a reference to the the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Beatitudes. We can look at Luke 6 for this information. And in Luke 6, verse 20, it says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, he says, listen, you're seeing things one way. You're thinking of things a certain way. But did not Jesus tell us to think things differently, to see things differently? And what you are saying is, hey, sit in the corner. Hey, sit at my feet. Jesus had said, blessed are you. For yours is the kingdom of God. James reminds him, these are the people who are heirs to the kingdom. And we should be seeing things through the eyes of the kingdom. And therefore, you have things backwards. He again, and asks the question, talking of the rich, he says, And do not the rich oppress you and drag you to court and blaspheme the name of Christ. Now, that seems rather hard. And if you think that's tough, wait till later in the book of James, because James gets meaner. But again, we could go right back to Luke chapter 6. 
Luke 6, starting in verse 24, we read this. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Man. And James is calling that to mind to these people. He says, listen, isn't it these rich people that drag you to court? Isn't they the one, aren't they the ones who oppress you and take advantage of you? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the name of Christ and the name of God? And they'd say, no, I don't think that. And he'd go, then what did Jesus say? And they go, well, yeah, he did, he did maybe say something about that. Now, does this mean we judge every person that has money? No. In fact, if we are really honest by the standards in which the scriptures were talking about rich and poor, everyone in this room would be considered rich. We have a roof over our head. Our bills are paid. We get food every day. Many of you are saving for retirement. Some of you are retired and living off of what you saved. We are exceedingly blessed. But we cannot trust in our riches. And guess what? We can't trust in other people's riches too. See, again, God is not calling us to then do the opposite. He's not saying, hey, you, you judge this rich man and this poor man and you messed up. And so what you need to do is you need to flip it and change the judgment around, but still be judging the rich man and the poor man. That's not what he's saying at all. Rather, what he's saying is, is you are only looking at the outward things. And you don't know anything about the man who has come into your congregation. And you need to begin to see things the way God sees them and to have a kingdom vision for the church. They were looking through the world in worldly, pragmatic eyes. And make no mistake, that is a temptation in the church today. The world would tell the church, we need the right clientele. We need churches that attract deep pockets, community influencers, and those who help the church convey the right image. Now, things have changed in in years, and and today you may notice that the image that most churches want to convey is that we are young, that we are connected, and that we are successful. And so churches will fall over themselves to pursue young families and young couples and, and, and young people, but in the same sense have no idea what to do with them or disciple them or how to minister to them. And so suddenly we'll, we'll, we'll start putting lasers up and fog machines and all that type of stuff. And I'm not against all of that, though I think fog machines are weird and they smell bad. But they get so obsessed with trying to bring the right people in that they're bringing in maybe one of the right people, but for all the wrong reasons. And we need to stop and think for just a moment and begin to recognize that all are people created in the image of God. And therefore, all have a place in church and all have a right to be serving within the church and doing things that that sometimes we don't even see and we don't even know are needed. In fact, if we stopped and thought for just a moment 
we may realize that those who may be considered material, materially poor or just different than the way our congregation might look could teach us a great deal about faith and entrusting in God for precision and about coming together as a community to lift each other up. The reason the church is one body with many members is because we see things differently and we see the needs differently. And let me tell you, one of my favorite things, I'm, I'm kind of a teacher. I like to teach. I like to teach Bible studies. And one of my favorite things is when I get either a new believer or an unbeliever in a class and they want to ask questions. And I like it because, one, it sharpens me. It makes me better. And it makes me have to go. I love it when I finally go, let me, let me look into that. When they get me. I'm like, I don't know the answer to that one. Let me get into that but also because they begin to see things that I didn't see and they notice things that I don't notice and they begin to bring out either hypocrisy in the church or, or points in scripture that I've never really thought of. And often it is those people, it's the new believers, it's the, new one, the ones who have rededicated their life and that have never grown up in this church thing that begin to be the ones that say, hey, I see a need. And they begin new ministries and new outreach to new people that someone like me or like you never even knew existed. And we miss out on all of that when we only attract and only pursue and only treat well the people that look like us and talk like us and act. From here, as Scripture often does, James reminds us that of what we are supposed to do. So he begins by, by giving the indictment, giving the command, this is what you are to do, but this is what you are doing. And because, and then he goes on to say, and what you're doing is, is seeing the world through fleshly eyes and, and you're not seeing the world the way God wants you to do it. And then he says, so this is what I want you to do. Go to verse 8. He says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, that you should love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This command is found first in Leviticus 19.18, quoted exactly like you see it. But we also see this verse pop up in all three synoptic gospels under the question of what is the greatest commandment. And I want to read you one of those because I think it is the, the uh, example of this in Luke chapter 10 that best really explains the whole thing. Starting off in Luke chapter 10, I'm going to begin in verse 25 if you want to turn there. And it says, A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, him being Jesus. And he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? The scribe answered, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the scribe, he said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell into the robber's hands? And the scribe said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. See, the Samaritan had every reason to ignore the man who had fell among robbers. We assume because the man, and we don't get any information about him, we assume that he's a Jewish man as he's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And yet this Hebrew man that had fell among robbers and left half dead saw one of his own priests walk by and ignore him, passing on the other side just like we might if we walked through those doors and saw someone that didn't seem to be worth our time. From the priest then came a Levite, someone who was of the tribe of Levi and part of the temple worship and a brother and kinsman to the man who fell among robbers and yet he did the same thing. But the Samaritan, the one who already had enmity with the man that went back generations, one who had no vested interest, no no relation, and no reason to show this man any mercy, had compassion on him, treated him with dignity, and did not stop until the person was back on his feet. In short, he sought his welfare above his own. May we do the same, both physically and spiritually, for all those who God places in our lives as much as we are able. We are called to love our neighbor. And that means loving them before we make a judgment about them. That means loving them and seeing their well-being First, That means loving them in a way that might inconvenience us, that might cost us something, that might do something to, to, to change what people think about us. But we are called to love our neighbor and to see them better off. And whether that's for a short distance or for a long distance, we are called to love our neighbors. And brothers and sisters... I don't believe we could possibly have a clue how big of an impact you can have on someone's life when you just for your little moment with them show them love instead of judgment. Our passage ends with a warning about refusing to do what God has commanded us to do. He reminds us that if we keep the whole law in all of these different ways, but we still 
fail in just one way that we are a lawbreaker. And it's for this very reason that we have to trust in God and to place our hope and trust in Him. If we look again at the end of our text, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, you do well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. I think when we look at this passage, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we all begin to recognize that we fall into that category in one way or another. That all of us really, truly, at some point, in some way, have made judgments and have treated people differently, treating some better than they deserve maybe, and some more poorly. And James' call to us today is to be, to be reminded that one, don't do that. But two, that we are still under grace. I halfway wonder, and I don't know if he had a specific church in mind when he said this. I tend to believe that he did. Or he just saw a theme among the church at his time and he was telling them, you have become arrogant. And you have come to a place where you think you deserve things. That you have some way contributed to your own salvation and that you have earned God's love and grace and favor. And I am here to tell you, you have not. But that you, like me, are a transgressor of the law. And it's not that you have committed murder and committed adultery and and done all of these awful things. But if you have even shown partiality to one person over a next, and you have done so and you have judged them with sinful motives, that you are a lawbreaker and that you need the grace that comes through Christ Jesus. The ending of this part of James chapter 2 should serve as a reminder that we need Jesus. We need Jesus in order to be a right relationship with God. We need Jesus in order to walk with God and to know God. And to be quite honest, we need Jesus to transform our hearts and our minds so that we don't do what James is telling us not to do. We need His grace. We need His mercy. And we need the Spirit dwelling inside of us to show us in the way that we ought to go. And when we begin to recognize all that God has done for us, how He has moved us from darkness to life, that He has taken us who are sinners and people who that have been in rebellion towards God and through the power of the gospel, He has made us right with God. When we begin to recognize what how good the news is of the gospel, then we will be able to look at other people and love them regardless of their background, regardless of their socioeconomic class, regardless of their skin color, regardless of the team they cheer for on Saturday. Because in reality, there is no difference between us. We are all sinners who desperately need saving. People who need Jesus. And we should love them and point them to Him. If that is your heart today, and you would like to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, we would invite you to do that. I'm going to come and stand up front. 
And as we sing our last song, we would encourage you to join us and, and to come up front. And I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about what it means to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. If you're here today and you feel that, that, that this passage in particular has really touched your heart and you recognize your need to come to God in confession and repentance for your sinful partiality and your favoritism, then we would invite you to do that. And you can come and talk to me and have prayer with me. You can just come up to these steps. And, and if you want to just take a knee and just hand something over to God, we want to invite you to do that. But rest assured, what we see in this passage, one, is, is, is this call to, to not show favoritism, but to treat people and to love people and to, to love our neighbors. But in with that, we are reminded of the grace that we need through Jesus. And the good news is that the Bible says that when we take our sin and we confess our sin and we repent and we hand these things over to God, that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you have no need to fear coming to these steps because you have a God who loves you and is eager to restore that relationship with you. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. God, we praise you for, for the text today. God is in, and Lord, you call us to hard things. And God, you call us to, to, do things that, that really go contrary and counter to the way the world ha has, has taught us, to different to the way our hearts tend to work and the flesh tends to, to drive us. And God, we need you. God, we need you 